Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Actually, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, but we're focused on 4 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day, by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our ears and open our minds to the warnings that we find in your scripture. I pray that the children here would hear these warnings and that they would be sobered up by them, that they would be mindful that they are in the midst of battle that we would all be mindful that we're in the midst of a battle. And there are enemies who would like to see us turn away from the faith and give ourselves to our sensuality. And Father, I pray that you would give us a genuine fear of you as we read the scripture and as we face our temptations. Lord, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So last week, we focused on the first three verses of chapter 2. In that passage, you remember the Apostle Peter describes for us the activity of heretics, of false teachers. He says that they will arise among us. False teachers will arise among us. That they will do their work secretly, right? Surreptitiously. They will sneak in. That they 
ultimately deny Jesus. That's the fruit of their work, is to deny Jesus. He states that they are motivated by two things. They're motivated by their sensuality and they're motivated by their greed. Sex and money are the reason why many teachers depart from Scripture and become false teachers. And then he concludes the passage saying, uh, in the last phrases of verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And then our passage that we're looking at, 4 through 10, is sort of expanding out that statement. Their destruction is not asleep and how do we know that? Let's begin with that statement, though, in verse 3. The judgment of false teachers from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Why does the apostle Paul, Peter, bring the long ago past into this conversation? Well, because he's about to lay out for us how God has dealt with false teachers all through time. How God has dealt with false teachers um, all in the past. Essentially what he is saying is that God has consistently given us examples of the punishment of false teachers. From long ago he's done it. From the very first troublemaker, right? The serpent in the garden. He's punished those who pervert God's word and attempt to lead others astray. Right? To the serpent, you remember his punishment. Right after the events, on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life and, and he shall bruise you on the head. Right? Those are all punishments and prophecies of punishments that would come from God. God's judgment against false teachers is from long ago. It's from the very beginning. False teachers are like uh, prisoners on death row. Right? Their condemnation is hanging over them. It's, it's coming. It, is, it has been decreed and it is coming. It's, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Their judgment is not asleep. Their judgment is not asleep. Uh, their judgment is not asleep because the judge never sleeps or slumbers, right? The judge, the one who brings the judgment, never sleeps or slumbers. God's eyes are always and listen to this, they're always and ever on every person's actions. He sees everything you do, and not only that, he, see, he, he knows everything you think, right? It goes way beyond him seeing your actions. Psalm 11, verse 4 through the end, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. The upright will see his face. God's gaze Right? Think about God's gaze for a moment. God's gaze is not limited by any barriers. Should you make your bed even in Sheol, God is there and God sees. Um, should you only sin in private, right? Should you be one of those, well, there aren't any, one of those people who only sin in private, 
Um, God sees. There is nothing private. God sees. God is watching. Should you live in, you know, in the penthouse of the tallest skyscraper in Manhattan, God observes there everything you do. Should your sins be only intellectual? Should they be only inward like greed? God sees even there. And should your motives, right? Should your motives be like those of the false teachers to sell people false falsehoods so as to get their money or their body? God sees that. God sees. God knows, right? If, if Elon Musk gets us over to Mars, God will be there too, testing all the hearts of men. He will see, he will know every action, every thought. There is no distance that we could possibly travel to get away from the gaze of God. Scripture says there is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. There is no place to hide. You know, I, I, I don't think children, young people, I don't think anyone comes to their senses about the depth of their own sin until they see sin in the context of God's knowledge of that sin, right? The God who loves righteousness and hates iniquity sees all things. Those who don't have a sense of that, right? You go through your day not thinking about the fact that God is watching. You just go through your day thinking that you are your own being and you're mostly thinking your own thoughts and you're mostly in your own places. And um, if I don't tell anybody what I did, then no one knows. That, that's, that's false. If you don't have a sense that, um, that God is watching, that God is both being gracious in watching you, always gracious, and watching over you to protect you, but also watching over you to see if you are going after iniquity or going after righteousness. And I, I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think if we don't have a sense of that, if we don't think about that, then we don't have any sense of shame when we do wrong. Because it feels good, it's momentary, and it's here and gone. And God never saw it. We just won't have a sense of shame. Um, in, in a sense, that is to live as an atheist, right? To, the, the distinguishing difference between the Christian worldview, the Christian mindset, and that of the atheist is that God sees. God is there, and he sees, right? The atheist knows God is there, hates him, and thinks he doesn't see. And so when the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, this sense of God's gaze and, and our sinfulness begin, right? Our knowledge of our sinfulness begins. This was the experience of Adam and Eve. When once they had sinned, they hid themselves from what? They hid themselves from the sight of God, from the gaze of God. They had a sense of their sins. Strikingly, many people, perhaps some sitting here today, have no sense that a holy God who is omnipresent sees. He is scrutinizing your thoughts even now. He is keeping a log of all your thoughts 
for all the things I say that make you mad, but come from his word. Right? He's keeping track of all my thoughts even as I preach and all the sins that I commit up here in this pulpit. The only determining factor for what they think, believe, say, or do is whatever their little heart desires, right? Those who don't think that God sees. It's just basically what you feel, what your heart feels. That's what you're going to give yourself to. And certainly that is the case for false teachers who think, believe, say, and do because they believe it will give them some advantage over someone who is naive and unprepared. Verses 4 through 6 then begins by setting out for us examples of God's seeing and God's judging laid out from long ago. There are three examples. Sinful angels, the ancient world during Noah's time, and Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, just think for a moment of those examples. They're quintessential examples of God's judgment. They're they're a paradigm for God's judgment. Fallen angels, the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah. The first example of God's judgment laid out here is his not sparing even angels when they sin. Okay, now your thoughts are having thoughts, aren't they? When did the angels sin? Right, when, when did the angels sin? How could the angels have sinned? Well, I don't have an answer for that one, right? But, but they did. Um, when did they sin? Scripture doesn't give us much information about this because Scripture is not about the angels. It's about the redemption of mankind. That's its focus. In fact, the redemption of mankind are things that, at which angels um, marvel at. But all, all we know from Scripture is that angels did sin. We do not find out how they could sin, something about the will of angels, but that they could is indisputable as this passage teaches. Jesus, the Son of God, was witness to the fall of Satan after the 70 return to him during uh, his ministry. They expressed their joy at being able to cast out demons. And he says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. But that's all he says, right? He witnessed this fall from heaven. He does not describe the scene any more than that. In Jude 6, we learn that the angels did not keep their own domain, but left their proper abode, right? So it appears that they rose up against God and against the work and the calling that he had given them. He, they did not want to be constrained by what God constrained them with. In Isaiah 14, there's a possible reference to the fall of Satan. It reads, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You, have been weak. you, have, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. It concludes. So these angels did not want God's will. They wanted their own will, just like false teachers. And God has, as our text says, cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness where they are reserved for the judgment. It appears that God casts some into hell, but it also appears that he allows others to afflict mankind. That is God's prerogative. The final consignment to hell and darkness is described in the last book of the Bible. At the final judgment, they will be thrown into the lake of fire, and it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Their punishment enacted before Satan even tempted Adam and Eve will be final and unchangeable. The passage in 2 Peter has a second example of God's watchful eye. The apostle writes, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. God's gaze was fixed on the whole earth, and what he saw, what did he see? He saw violence. He saw violence. Genesis 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that the in- every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the, God, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to cre- animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then down a few verses, we read this. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, in the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. I mean, it's quite astonishing, isn't it? God looked down and saw that man's wickedness was everywhere, and his violence dominated every one of his relationships, and no one was getting along, and everyone was afflicting one another. And because of that, he determined as was his right as the sovereign king of the universe to wipe out all of mankind. Does that bother you? Does that bother your sense of justice? Do you think God should have chilled out? Do you think God should have backed off? Well, he did. He did back off, right? He accepted one family. And that was a very, very gracious act for him to accept one family. It says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And every time you read that in Scripture, you should have a smile on your face and the chills should go up and down your arms and your neck and and you should think Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Incredible. Incredible mercy, incredible grace. What was Noah, I mean, why? Why did he find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Was it because Noah was without sin? Absolutely not. We know from Genesis that he, was, he, he drank to drunkenness. Right? Then, then why was God gracious to him? Well, because he was, and he is, 
right? He was gracious to him because he was gracious to him. And because of that, Noah found favor in God's sight. Notice that the Apostle Peter in our passage explains this also, that Noah was a preacher, right? We didn't know that from Genesis. We didn't know that he was a preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness. While the whole world was going after violence, there, there he was, swimming against the stream of the whole world. In the book of Hebrews, we learn something about Noah's preaching. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Faith. Right? So, I mean, think of this. Think of that statement. In rever- so God spoke to him. In reverence, he began to, to build the ark by which he condemned the world. That was his preaching. The preaching was the building of this ark. And no doubt, the building of the ark offered him plenty of opportunities to answer the question, what in the world are you doing, Noah? And what would he say? God has told me that he is going to destroy the earth. He is going to destroy the people of the earth. He is going to condemn the world. And yet he has chosen me and my family for what reason it perplexes my mind to be saved. So God was pleased to pour out his wrath on all of mankind, save one. And that is the apostle Peter's point. Finally, the scripture reminds us in verse 6 of the devastating judgment brought about on the rebellious cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let's remind ourselves of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now, Lord, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. And Lot's like, uh-oh. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them, so that we may penetrate them. But Lot went out to, the, to them at the doorway and shut the door behind them and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. 
so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever that you have in the city. Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But, his, but he appeared to his sons-in-laws, his sons-in-law, to be jesting. sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But his wife, Lot's wife, from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now that specific judgment of God is paradigmatic, right? Here is what Jesus said to the apostles about the unrepentant cities of Judah during his day. He said, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And then Jesus goes on and he says, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Sodom got off light than these cities who reject Jesus and his apostles. That rejecting of the preaching of the gospel by the apostles is a worse offense than the Sodomites who desired to commit vile acts with their bodies. Think about that. Now notice what else Peter says in verse 6. Sodom's people were reduced to ashes because God was warning those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So that's why this, this is an example to us, right? Peter teaches us that that happened to them to be an example to the, those who want to live ungodly lives thereafter, to put the fear of God in those who want to live ungodly lives, if that is possible. That's why I said Sodom was a paradigm of God's judgment. The testimony of what God did to Sodom stands as a warning to the ungodly for all time, now and into the future. So, now, to back up, this scripture points us to God's judgment of the fallen angels, to the flood during Noah's day, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for this purpose. This is the purpose, to remind us that his judgment is not idle, and that the destruction of false teachers is not asleep. Right? Those who depart from the word of God, those who attempt to draw away disciples, those who serve their flesh and serve their greed, have a terrible future ahead. God's wrath toward those who would attempt to mislead his children is particularly hot. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea.
Now remember what we looked at last week. The apostle warned his people that many, many will follow these false teachers. That's what it says. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Many. Attracted by their sensuality and susceptible to their exploitation, many will follow. Are you hearing that? Do you hear that? Many will follow false teachers. I want you covenant children to hear that. Especially you. You children who have always been in the church and have Sunday after Sunday sat under the preaching of God's word and who are not particularly thankful or excited about the things of God. Because they're just kind of the way things have always been. It's old hat. It's boring to you. It is, it, is, it is labor for you to pick up the Bible and read about the one who made you. You are right now being assaulted by messages from false teachers in all sorts of places. And you Covenant children are not even aware of it. Commercials on TVs are false teachers telling you that you can be whatever you want to be, telling you that happiness is bound up in like what you have. College professors are often false teachers selling you a worldview that is deadly and godless. They want to burden you with the guilt of the world and make you pay money for that guilt to be expunged. Do you see how that is much different than the message of the gospel which reveals your guilt and then provides all the expense to pay for it? Provides you real freedom from real sins, not manufactured ones. I mean, Google Doodles, Google Doodles are false teachers preaching that diversity is good and that sin doesn't exist. The words of songs you listen to on Spotify seek to make you delight in the things that God hates. Do you not think that that has been a temptation my whole life as I grew up in the 80s and 90s and listened to grunge bands and, and this and that and all kinds of classical music that just delights in sensuality? Do you, do you think I was born yesterday? And then there are false teachers. That's outside the church. Then there are false teachers who secretly enter into churches right, and who call themselves Christians, and today you know where they do it, they do it through blogs and social media. They, they, they're the teachers who repackage the message of the world and then put a thin veneer of Christianity over it. They will be the ones who will get you to doubt that God has said in his word 
things about your sexuality and, your, and fatherhood and the divinity of Jesus Christ and the coming judgment. They will plant subtle seeds of doubt in your mind so that you begin to buy their alternative. And it'll make you popular. It'll make your friends like you more. It will make you constantly not have to be the oddball Christian that seems to not be able to be at the center of any happy thing in this life. Vanity of vanities. The children, children, are you aware that Satan is going to use those things and those people to get you to turn against God? Satan is going to use those false teachers to get you to hate God. Get you to turn against the most glorious God, the, the only one worth adoring. The gracious God who loved you even when you hated him. They are going to get you to try to despise him. The one who knit you together in your mother's womb. And children, the scripture says that many of you will follow them. And if you do, the remainder of your days will be the best days you experience. They will be glorious and wonderful. But in rejecting Christ, you will be rejecting the only protection you have from God's wrath against sin the day you die. Do you get this? Are you aware of the battle? That is going on now. Go to school and the words of your friends are false teachers trying to draw you away from God. Do you, do you not realize that even the friends you have that you've never met in person, the friends you know only online, are seducing you to turn against the gracious God of heaven? You may not be aware of it. You may think it's innocuous, that it's just communication. But if they're not Christians, they're seducing you to their view of the world. Do you care? Will you have your few good things now and after death have your punishment? Is that what you want? Will you reject the influence of your parents who have cared and they've loved you and will you reject the God of heaven who gave his son for you so that you can fall under the spell of those who have no care for your soul even though you, they make you feel special in the moment? Temporary, temporarily being made special makes a heretic of so many people. Giving up eternity for temporary moments of being made to feel special.
Look again at our passage. Many will follow after false teachers, but Noah didn't and Lot didn't. Verse 4, God preserved Noah with seven others. And verse 7, God rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And so it was God who preserved them. It was God who was at work in them. I mean, think about Lot, right? We got to think about Lot now. He seems to not be a very good guy. I mean, he seems to be a sinner, doesn't he? I mean, a terrible sinner. He, he hesitated to leave Sodom. He took the choice land when Abraham offered him the choice. He was made drunk by his daughters and had children by them. He gave his daughters over to those who were coming to him and, and said, you know, do what you want with them, but do not afflict these angels that have come into my, under my roof. His wife turns back to look at Sodom with a lustful glance and she's turned to stone. His responsibility. He's a wreck. Lot is a wreck. Right? And yet, what do we find out about him in this passage? The definitive commentary on the Old Testament. What do we find out about him? That he was oppressed by the unprincipled sensual conduct of wicked men and that his soul was tormented by observing lawless deeds. In other words, when he saw the rainbow flag of the LGBT movement in Sodom, when he saw the pride parades going down the main street of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't listen to the false teachers who would have told him to accept others and do not judge and be tolerant. No, he saw that pride and his righteous soul was tormented day and night, right? He saw their lawless deeds and it broke his heart. It crushed him. He's a righteous man. Lot is a righteous man. Sinner, of course. So are you. So am I. So are all of us. We've done terrible, terrible, terrible things just in the things we've taught. I mean, thought. Right? Here's what Lot did not do when he observed the wicked. He did not want to join them. He did not want to say, you know, to each his own. He did not want to set aside God's standard so that he would be more liked by others. Right? He did not want to affirm those who are given over to their sin when there is a God who will judge them and send their souls to hell. He was tormented by wickedness. That's what marked righteous Lot. He was tormented by wickedness. Christian, if you are not tormented on some level by wickedness, by the wickedness you see in your own heart first and the wickedness you observe in the world, you are not a Christian. 
being tormented by wickedness is the way to resist false teachers. That is the way to resist false teachers. False teachers, more than anything else, will attempt to make God seem unfair and will teach you an alternative to his righteousness written about in his word. False teachers may talk a lot about God, but what they will do with their twisted words is slowly poison you against him. Just a little bit of arsenic in each lecture. Before long, you will be a worldling who reads his Bible only every so often. You will believe you are righteous because of how dignified your thinking is. You will no longer need the righteousness of Christ that is only available to those that know their righteousness is as filthy rags. False teachers will make you think way too highly about yourself and way too lowly about God, and Scripture will do the opposite. And that's why you don't like it. It will teach you to think lowly about yourself. It will annihilate you. But it will explode the importance of God Almighty. So finally, look at the last few verses of our passage. If, if God rescued Noah, if God preserved Noah, if he rescued righteous Lot, oh, these words are so glorious. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly man from temptation. Right? And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Both sides of the equation. He knows how to punish and he knows how to keep the godly. God knows how to rescue the godly man from temptation, the temptation to follow false teachers. Have you now stop and think? I've just told you that there are false teachers everywhere. They're all trying to seduce you, young men. Have you asked God to protect you from the siren voices of false teachers? He knows how to protect you. Have you asked him to protect you? Have you asked him? He knows how to rescue. Calvin writes in his commentary, this conclusion is very necessary for us, for this thought is apt to creep into our heads. If the Lord would, ha if the Lord would have his own to be safe, why does he not gather them all into some corner of the earth that they may mutually stimulate one another to holiness? Why does he mingle them with the wicked by whom they may be defiled? But when God claims to himself the office of helping and protecting his own, that they may not fail in the contest, we gather courage to fight more strenuously. That's what he says. We gather courage to fight more strenuously. God doesn't take us out of the world, but he says he will keep us. And then we have courage to fight against false teaching, and everything that would seduce us. So let me end here, children. God is for you. God is for you. God is for you, children. He knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. 
He knows how to lead you to green pastures and, and take you out of the wastelands of this world. He does not take you out of this world, as Calvin put it, to some corner of the earth. And he does require you, though, to fight, to fight. But it's a good fight. There's victory in Christ. He who is, strong, he who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. He calls you to fight, and the strength for that fight comes from him. And so after you have fought, and you've fought off all the assaults of false teachers and the words of the unprincipled, he will welcome you into his presence, and he will say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, well done, good, good fight. And at that moment, those condemned to hell, those condemned to hell, those who serve their flesh rather than their creator will envy you if they're even possible at that point of envying. Something that's good. So I'm commanding you, children. I'm commanding my children, I'm com- and, and all of you children are my children. I'm commanding you as your father and your pastor to fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. We will stumble. We will sin. We will wrestle with terrible doubts. We we at times will resemble the godless. But what will distinguish us from them is we will never stop going to God who knows how to rescue those who are tempted. We will never stop hoping in the grace of God and trusting in Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. Close with this verse. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, fight, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. God knows how to rescue those who are tempted. Fight, fight, fight. Let's pray. Father, we are encouraged by your word. We're encouraged by your grace. We're encouraged by the fact that you, you tell us to fight and then you rescue us. Lord, that you have given us this calling to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus and your Holy Spirit comes and works in us so that we may do just that. And Father, the false teachers come in and, and tempt us false messages, false worldviews, false alternatives come in and they tempt us. And they tempt us for the foolishest, for the the most foolish reasons that that we're shy and they'll they'll give us friends. Or that we're, we're, we're needy and they'll give us a means of living. 
And Father, you have promised, you have promised to, to, if we seek your kingdom first, that you will add everything else to us. And so, Father, I pray for the young men and young women here, for all of us, that we would fight against these messages, that we would cling to what is good, that we would abhor what is evil, that we would not buy the lies of those who would tell us that there is no good and there is no evil. Father, this, that is maybe the root of Satan's temptation in the garden and the root of every temptation since. There is wickedness. There is good, Father, and we, we want to choose the good. Father, I pray for I pray that you would rescue those who are deep into their temptations and who are giving in to temptation, who are not just listening to the voices of false teachers, but are enjoying the voices of false teachers. I pray that you would give them ears to see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, as he has, is described in your perfect and inerrant word. I pray that the scriptures would come alive. I pray that they would delight in turning over the phrases of what you have said in their minds and that they would find strength in that. Father, we pray that you would help us. Pray that when we give ourselves to sin that we would arise, that we would confess that we were the man, that we would repent, and that we would continue to fight. Lord, help us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.